Hello, you're listening to the Mr. Money Jar podcast. Mr. Money Jar here. This episode is taken from an Instagram live and has been uploaded in its entirety. This means that some of what you hear may seem odd in an audio format. For example, there might be references to questions that appeared during the live, plus some audience interaction, and very rarely some swearing or audio mishaps. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Olubenga. I'm so so sorry for for the for the mixer. I'm I'm not tax I'm not tech service service sorry. Oh no worries, you're here now. So trust me, that is more tech than a lot of people <laughs> than a lot of people manage. Um, okay, thank you to you for persevering. Thank you to everyone for bearing with. Um, just for the purposes of the episode, because I've kind of rambled a bit. Um, I'm just going to like introduce it just for the podcast. So um, I'll just go from the top. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode eighteen of the Mr. Money Jar Show. We're going to be today by Olubenga King, the founder of BSL Financial Services, and today we're going to be talking about how to buy a home in 2022. We are joined by Olubenga King. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, thank you, Tim, for having me. I uh, appreciate the the invite. It's uh, it's one of those opportunities that I don't take for granted. No, wor- no worries at all. <clears throat> Let's dive straight in, um, Olubenga. Um, do let us know um, what you do. Uh, as you said earlier, I'm the founder director of uh, BSL Financial Services. We mainly focus on mortgages. Anything to do with acquiring properties, we, we, do, we do help our clients buying first-time buyers, those that want to move into investments, land development, auction purchase, anything property related, we, we, we help. So, yeah, that's, that's what we do. And we're based in Lucian. Ah, Southeast London. Do you ever hit, yes. up, do you ever hit up Enish? Sorry? Do you ever hit up Enish in Lucian? Yes, yes. Is that well, like five minutes from there? Yeah, nice. That is a nice restaurant. Hashtag not an ad. Um, <laughs> let's dive straight into the questions. Uh, what tips do you have? for first-time buyers looking to get on the property ladder in 2022? Because it's a fast-moving you know, area of finance, fast-moving industry. Uh, prices changing all the time, the rules, government policies, all of that. So um, what are the most up-to-date tips you have? Uh, I think the, the first thing that I would like to tell people that are looking to do first-time purchase is... Um, Try and see if you and your friends, because one thing I've noticed recently is that the trend is young people looking to move out of their parents' house. It's a good thing because of wanting to be independent. But what many people don't realize is instead of moving to a rental place, four of them can come together, four, four friends can come together to buy a house a four-bed house. So all their incomes will be used as source of affordability. 
and whatever they're going to put down as deposit in terms of the rental might be enough with help of family and friends to to put towards deposit towards them buying and just taking each room and living together okay. so that's that's one of the things that i think i would like to put out there um any, any more? Because I think that's really interesting and I'd want to unpack that. But if, if you have any more, do you mention them? Yeah, there, there, there are other things that I know everyone's aware of the help to buy that the government has been talking about. What many people would not realize is that sort of scheme is not just the government side that has that offering that. There are some private companies that are offering help to buy sort of scheme as well. So with them, you are not restricted to new build. You can actually buy an old existing property. They will give you up to 20%. They won't do the government 40%, but they will give you up to 20% of the value of the purchase, and you are not restricted to new build. So you only need to find 5% of the deposit. And they help you top it up because they've partnered with other lenders, some lenders that will allow them partner with you to to do the funding. So That's it, to then. Is this like sorry? a? Is this a sort of bridging finance type situation? No, it's like help to buy. It's like the government's help to buy scheme, but you are getting it from a private lender. Okay, understood. Topping up the deposit, so it's more help to buy structured. Than because they will still remain like they, it's basically the way the government system is set up. Theirs is similar, but they're not restricting you to new properties alone. Um, we, <clears throat> we've had a question, an excellent question, which would have been my next question to you is Can you give us some examples of private ones that have had those help to buy scheme? And I'll also add to that question How can people? Obviously, the government is the government, um, so that's your guarantee if, if you go with uh, the government's help to buy scheme. How can people discern between a trustworthy and regulated private lender and, uh, yeah? Oh, the, the, the lenders I'm talking about, they are FCA regulated. They're not just about any, any sort of lender. And um, for them to be allowed to do what they're doing, they need to be able to partner with an, a lender that will cover the remaining mortgage for you because they will only give you 20% and you put down 5%. Then the lender will now cover the remaining 75%. So the lenders have done their due diligence in terms of what they're proposing. The FCA have signed them off in terms of we are happy for you to to do what you're doing so it's as i would like to share the names but it will come as if i'm actually advertising their product but what i'm talking about is talking about the service they offer mm. so mortgage brokers will be able to guide them to those private lenders mm -hmm. but it's for me the interesting thing about them is the fact that one of the providers would is interest-free they will give you the 20% of the 
of the value up to 100,000. You don't pay interest on what they're giving you. Though they'll take share of the equity when you're ready to pay them back and they're not charging you for coming. So there are different things that are out there for first-time buyers to take advantage of. The other thing is bank of mom and dad for those that have the privilege. The, the parents can give them a deposit to, towards the purchase. Another thing is what we call joint applicant sole proprietor. So that one is mainly your income is not enough. But you have a brother or sister or parent that own a property, but they don't want to give you deposit. The lenders can allow them, some lenders will allow them to join you on the application for affordability purpose, their income and your income for the mortgage. But when the property is being registered, it will just be your name that will show on the land registry. So as far as the land registry is concerned, <clears throat> you own the property. It's just that they help you, they help you to get the mortgage in terms of affordability. Yeah. Um, so that that's where go. So the general theme between these different options that you've given seem to be to it, it kind of it seems like the trend is to remove the emphasis away from the individual buying a house and to seek ways to share the burden either by partnering up with friends with uh, an organization or with someone else who has collateral that can be used towards the purchase. Now, of those, the thing that I find most interesting is the one about partnering up with your friends because of the societal shift that that represents. I think that there are a lot of people who either expected to buy a home on their own or with a partner, you know, um, and to settle down and have a family. Um, from your experience, have you seen people's willingness to partner with friends? Is there a willingness there for people to, to do that from what you've seen? Well, we, we, we've seen such thing, but in terms of investment, in terms of people doing it as a buy-to-let investment, people will come together to pull funds together. That's the common knowledge that you can do that when you're buying, but many people don't realize you can actually do that for when you're, for where to live as well. So it's not as common as you and your friends coming together, putting funds together to buy a house so that you can rent it out and start making income from it. For me, the reason I, um, I gave that as the first thing was that, for example, someone that they're not married yet, they're, they typically will go and rent a room or, or a flat that's expensive, which will mean it will take them longer to save, the, to save up for them being able to buy. But the good thing with this option is that you've bought with your friends. As long as the mortgage is paid up monthly, the property, if it's in a good place, is increasing in equity. And when the friends, let's say they've all decided that they're getting married and they've been able, because 
bear in mind that the mortgage will be split in between four people. It means their monthly payment will be very low because it's going to be split between four people paying the mortgage. So they will be able to save quickly towards their objective. They want to move up beyond their own, things like that. It, was, it will be quicker to save. Let's say one of them wants to move out. It can either retain the ownership of the percentage or sell its share to his friend through equity transfer and the friends will buy him out. That's an investment. Yeah. And or they can all say, okay, we're ready to go and buy. We turn into a buy-to-let investment for them, raise whatever capital, they go on their way and they rent that one out. That's also an investment. Yeah. It's certainly, it's certainly possible. And yeah, we're in that weird situation, particularly in London where mortgage costs are it's very high. lower than, than rental ones. Um, yeah. I'm just very interested. Oh, let, let's ask the listeners. Um, anyone at home, whether you own a home or not, would you buy a house with your friend or friends? Is that something that you'd consider? Because it is a very, it's a very different... I imagine scenario for a lot of people looking to get on the property ladder. Um, we have had um, a question, um, okay. just, which I'll just put to you, and then and then I'll give you my my second question on the banker. Um, the question is: Is it possible to get a second charge on an RTB mortgage? What is needed to do this? I think by RTB mortgage we mean right to right to buy. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's possible. It's possible as long as you can justify why you need it. Because I've I've done for clients that six months after doing the right to buy, we were able to go back to the same lender or to another one for them to raise money to do either something in the house or for them to do investment, to do a buy to let investment. So Either way, you will need the consent of the council. They need to sign it up. And as long as you are not selling the property within the the preemption uh, five years, they will mostly allow you to, to take on the second charge or additional loan. Great. Thank you for answering that. <clears throat> hope I helped the asker. And also, we had another question, um, which I think you answered in the course of speaking, which was, um, you said that the um, the private companies with similar help to buy structures don't charge you in interest. They instead just take the equity share and then they uh, maintain that share when you come to sell. We had a question saying, don't pay interest for how long? I believe you meant that they don't charge interest at all. Yeah, it's not all of them, just few of them. Some will charge interest, but the interest is, is low. But those that won't charge it, they'll just expect you to pay something towards the loan that they've given you interest-free for as long as you have the loan with them. And the way they make their money is when you want to pay them back, they will take 50% of the equity that you have on the property. So the idea is to help you get on the property ladder without you having to to stress yourself too much. So, got you. 
My next question for you, Olubengo, is how should a first-time buyer approach saving for a deposit? So you've talked already about lowering your costs through partnering up with friends, through help with friends and family. But if we just imagine you're in the position of a lot of people, which is that you're renting, um, those rental costs are taking anywhere from 33 to 50% of your take-home pay. You obviously have other financial obligations. What, how, how do you approach saving for what, for many people, is the biggest chunk of money they'll probably save um, over the course of their lives? Yeah, I think that, like you mentioned, is something that most people are going through in terms of having the problem of saving, especially if they're in London. How can you save? So for me, there's a, there's a, you're from Nigeria, you know the concept of what we call a job. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a company currently here in the UK that will allow you to do similar scheme that's regulated by the FCA. Oh, right. Can you, that, can you name them? Yeah, they're called Stepladder. All oh, right, yeah, I've worked with Stepladder. <clears throat> yeah, so it's it's one of those concepts that, e that makes it easier to sort of save because everyone is pulled pool saving, everyone is putting money in the pot and they can give you at when it's your turn. For me, that would be an ideal way to start because lenders work with them. Then some lenders are comfortable with that sort of saving. So you know that it will be difficult for you to save by yourself. Such scheme will allow you to save and you, when is your turn, you're getting a lump sum. And if you position yourself properly, that lump sum can be 5% that you can use towards help to buy or the other scheme that I mentioned. Also, shared ownership is a good way to start. Because at the end of the, the day with shared ownership, when your income is sufficient, you've got equity on, on the part, the share that you, the percentage you bought. You can always remortgage to acquire the remaining percentage. I actually did that for a client that when he bought his property, he was only able to buy 30%. And when it was time that he wanted to acquire the rest, that 30% has grown in terms of equity for him to have 10% of the total value of the house. And his income was sufficient enough to take the 90%. So all we did was just remortgage for him on a 90% mortgage where he was able to buy out the remaining and keep ownership of the full property. So these things are, they're there, they, they, they sound difficult. Could Sorry? I, could I just recap that one um, just for my benefit and for the benefit of the listeners, just to make sure I've got that properly. So you had a client who bought a third of a property, a 33% yeah. share in a property and then was paying um, 33% mortgage, 66% rent, well, 67% yeah. rent on, on the rest. The value of that property appreciated such that when you remortgaged, they were able to use the additional money to acquire the whole of the rest of the ownership of the house? 
Yes, so it's thirty three percent is grown in value. Okay. Sufficient enough to be to cover thirty thirty percent I mean ten percent of the total value of the okay. property. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when we went to a new lender, we're just looking for ninety percent mortgage rent. So he didn't have to put down additional deposit. He just used the equity on the flat as the deposit. Okay. Yeah. Hugely uh, dependent, obviously, on property prices going up. But that is what they yeah. appear to be doing at the moment and have been doing for quite some time now. We just have a quick question. Yeah. Uh, was this a London property is the question? Yes, it's a, it was a London property. London property. Okay. Thank you. So, um, yeah, uh, on uh, so Stepladder, great organization. Um, I've, I've worked with them before. Um, they are, yeah, they're, they're regulated, but the one thing with them, which they do say upfront, in fairness to them, is that the funds aren't covered by the financial services compensation scheme because they are pooled. They don't ever see. Yeah, they are pooled, so the, the structure is not yeah. as strict as. But the thing is, it's because they're sort of, they're out there, they're known. Mm -hmm. Their brand is recognized. It sort of helps you. At least the confidence is a bit higher compared to you doing with random people that you... Absolutely. And I've, I've used the service to uh, save um, with other people. And um, Emmanuel Lasuko, um financial advisor, I, I saw a post the other day saying that he's raised, helped raise a total of a hundred thousand pounds. through the scheme. So yeah, yeah. There's clearly um, some, yeah, some for for people who want to go in that direction. There's clearly a um, a track record there. Yeah. And then in terms of shared ownership, um, yeah, I think when it comes to using uh, schemes like these, definitely speaking to a mortgage broker such as yourself, you'll know the of, yeah, like the house and what prices are doing and which lenders they, um, your clients can go to and so on. Excellent. Um, I hope this is a useful conversation for everyone at home. We're covering a lot of very different things, but the idea, I guess, is just to broaden your perception of what is available to you and i hope that this conversation is is helping with that um let's get on to credit olubenga so how can a first-time buyer build their credit history especially if they've not made an application for credit before i just want to take this opportunity to say a quick shout out to um our guest last week uh, uh, which was fumi from uh, hoops finance who i believe is watching this live we had a much more deeper dive conversation about credit on that live but if you could just speak about credit um as it pertains to uh yeah getting on the property ladder uh credit uh credit do play it plays a, a larger um i was gonna say a larger role but it does play a role in terms of lenders because the idea of a credit for lenders is for them to assess your credibility are you credit worthy in terms of what you're asking for um, in terms of you getting a mortgage, if you've not had credit in the past, doesn't mean you can't get a mortgage. That's, let's put that out there. You can still get a mortgage. It might be that the lenders that you look at will be the ones that 
will take a view on it, but you definitely get a mortgage. Even those with bad credit in the past, up to six months ago, that's got default, that's had default and TCJ registered against them. And they've, after the six months period, they've sort of got themselves back in, in shape. They're consistently paying. There are lenders for them as well. So the idea that, oh, you, when you have a bad credit, you're doomed, is not totally true. The only time you have difficulty is when someone is in a, a bankruptcy that has not been discharged. If you've been discharged and you've been good in terms of your credit, there are still lenders that would still give you mortgage. Um, in terms of, or the other thing is people that have issue in terms of their commitment, those are the ones that might have challenges because the idea is for lenders to look at your six-year history. How have you been doing? If it's someone that doesn't take their payment seriously, life do happen, life events happen, losing a job, death in the family, sickness, things like that, that will impact a period of one, one's life. Lenders do understand that. When that happens and you overcome that, you start paying regularly, they take care of you. It's only those that consistently miss their, their commitments without a genuine reason. Those are the ones that will find it difficult to, to get lending. But if you're committed to your credit, paying on time, not missing, not doing anything ridiculous, taking on too much debt compared to what you have incoming, like your salary, by the time you pay your expenses, the rest goes on credit commitment. Those are high risk because the idea is to assess your risk level. So if they can assess your risk level and it's acceptable to them, they will obviously they will definitely give get a mortgage for you. The rates might be higher compared to someone with a clean credit, but you still get a mortgage. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, yeah, adverse credit, um, kind of limited credit history. Um, what you're saying is that if you speak to um speak to a broker a broker yes you you should be able to find lenders that are happy to take a view even in the most unexpected of circumstances definitely definitely i've actually helped people in the past because that's where my company specializes we specialize in the complex uh, specialist lending okay. people with uh, history of adverse CCJ's county court judgment in the past. That's where we we sort of specialize because not to be disrespectful, we in our community, we don't understand. It's not every one of us that understand the concept of financial education. So the fact that when I came into the industry, I realized that the people that I was constantly coming across, they have the income, they have the deposit, but the credit was terrible. Interesting. Because their, their mindset is, I'm paying my bills. But lenders want you to pay on time. They have a specific day. So if you miss that day, automatically the system says you've missed 
payment. But in their mind, but I, I do pay. I don't owe anyone. You are not owing anyone, but the fact that you are not paying on that specific day means the system is constantly against you. So I, I had to constantly look for ways to help them. That's how I found myself specializing in that area. Um, we've had another question. Uh, oh, Topsy is in the chat. Uh, great to have you here, Topsy. Topsy is um, property expert extraordinaire, content creation genius. Huge, huge fan of his. Thank you for joining. Um, we've had a question um, in the chat, and then I'll ask you my next question, Olubenga. Um, how many months proof of income do you need if you're employed through an agency, i.e. not a full-time permanent position? Um, I don't know the answer to this. My guess is that is going to be similar to like self-employed people, so 12 to 24 months, but do, do correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, for agency people, it's definitely 12 months yeah. minimum because for they need to they need to have seen you in that role for, for 12 months. For zero contract people, because there are lenders that will do zero, that will give mortgages to people on zero contract as well. Some will want you to be in there for 12 months as well, two, two to 12, uh, 12 to 24 months to see history of you being there. The other thing that people might not be much aware of is some lenders will give you mortgages if you are getting a permanent role, but you haven't started the role. They've given you start date. They've given you your salary. They've confirmed that you've been employed. Some lenders will take that as well as proof of without you having to show pay slips or bank statement showing salary come in. So they because the contract is coming. They just want to see Sorry? they want to see proof of future income. Exactly. Okay. Great. Um how long can a first time buyer expect the whole home buying process to last for? I think that your answers to this are gonna surprise a lot of people because when I bought my house, it took like a year, like almost, almost a year. This is the thing. It's, it's, it's funny you ask that because we had one, was it last year, that we had a client that that was the first time I started a mortgage. We started a mortgage case for a client and it finished exactly two months. Two From start to two months. <laughs> to complete. Two months. Wow. To complete. That was the first time since I've been doing it. The guy was himself was the moment he found the property to us submitting to the lender offering to completion was exactly eight weeks. That's the fastest I've seen. But like you said, typical for us will be four to five months average because when the mortgage offer is out, the, the situation moves from the broker and the lender to the solicitors. 
So that's where your lender and your broker don't really have much control. Yeah. And I like that. I love, I love solicitors, but they operate on a different timescale. And I'll just leave it. Oh, yeah. Let's leave it at that because yeah. uh, we're constantly battling them in terms of. Because their work affects our cash flow as well. So if they're not working on time, it means cases are not completing, brokers are not getting paid. So they're on another level. That's yeah. like you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, two months. That, I, that, I think that's the fastest I've ever heard. Um, definitely. Is the, is the fastest I've done. Definitely not to be taken as um, the default, but interesting to hear that it can be that quick. Um, how much can a first-time buyer expect to borrow based upon their earnings? Historically, the multiple's been four and a half times, but there's some organizations now offering people up to seven times as much, provided they reach certain criteria. Yes, yes, that's true. Because uh, I think part of why things are changing is the fact that people are living longer, people are working longer. So it's it's helping lenders to sort of come up with products and structure that will help they give people more uh, more scope in terms of their ability to buy the 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 seven times income lenders are there but their criteria is very very strict in terms of what you need to do so those are the lenders that your credit needs to be very very clean the sort of client that they will give, because that's a higher risk in terms of giving someone, let's say the person is earning 50000 yeah, and they're giving them 375000 just on the loan side without them adding the deposit. So it's a very big loan. So it means the person needs to, uh, to be very disciplined in the history for the lender to be comfortable to do that. So the typical uh, multiple will be 4.5, 4.75 times income. Because bearing in mind that that's just a, the gross loan possible before they start looking at your credit commitments. Yeah. Because your credit commitments, your, your, your car loans, your stock cards, your credit card, personal loans, your commitment towards those ones will now be considered after they've given an indication of the maximum they can give you. And this is a really good point. I'd like to just also, by the way, we've had a question on the question cards. We will come to that question. Thank you for um, your patience. Um, just that point about essentially um, what your take-home pay looks like you know, after all yeah. of your fixed expenses come out is a really important one. If we could just touch Olubenga um, on student loans. Over the last week, week and a half, um, a lot of the stuff I've been seeing in the news and, and on socials has been around the increase in the student loan interest rate for Plan 2 post-2012 student loans. And I, I'm of the opinion that for the vast majority of people, 
a student loan functions very much like a like a tax so a 30-year deduction on your income after which the loan is is wiped um there's a threshold uh, of around 26 and a half thousand pounds under which if you earn under this amount you don't pay anything back and um you know, I, I find it tricky when people, every, every so often you'll speak to someone, they'll be like, I don't know whether to pay off my student loan or whether to save up a deposit for a house. And I know that personal finance is personal and you need to be very clear on why you want to own a house. But the saving up of a deposit strikes me as a much higher priority than paying off a loan loan which has been designed to increase more than you are able to pay it off. What's your take mm -hmm. on the loan piece? Well, um, student loan, from what I've seen in terms of the lenders we work with, is not, I don't think it's much of a priority in terms of you paying it off because they know it's there. It will be deducted from your pay slips. So it's like your, NI contribution, like you said, on your tax. Automatically, they will take it out. Yeah. So they will work based on your net. The gross is there, but it's what you've got left at the end of the month, what you can afford. That's how they will look at you. Yeah. So they, they and it's not all the lenders that take that side seriously because, like you said, they know it's, for, it's a student loan. Is not the ones that they're more concerned about are the credit cards, exactly. the HP loans, the store cards, the the loans that they deem unnecessary that people take out. Because student loan is, is is necessary for you to get good income. Yeah, and, and crucially, no one's wiping your credit card loan after thirty years. Like that, that will stay. No. No, yeah. and like you said, like you rightly said, if you are not earning certain amount, they're not taking it out. Yeah. With the other ones, it doesn't matter what you're earning; you're liable to pay those loans. Yeah. I really. So. For me, no, sorry. Sorry, it's not really much of a factor in terms of what people are doing. Yeah. Because, sorry, I just wanted to quickly point this out. If you have a lump sum use it towards the deposit than paying off a loan that's designed to to last longer. Yeah. Um, no, I just wanted to touch upon that because I think the things that we call things are really, um, are really important. And I think that by calling student loans, student loans, it's confused the whole thing on two levels. One, it's made them sound similar to other types of credit that function very differently, yeah. one. And then it's confused them with US student loans, which are actually like real proper loan. So you're like, you're in it and you're in debt and you need to pay it back. So I've been saying this for a while now, I really want to make some content around UK student loans and how they work and how the numbers work because um just for myself just to like get the numbers down and just to visualize them so that's something i want to work on um akila uh, harper in the um question cards uh how will the rising costs impact ability to buy should we still buy i think that's a great question thank you for your patience by the way 
stuff rising costs. I, I, for me, one thing I've sort of started talking to my clients about is the being flexible. The, ri the rising costs, if you look at it, are sort of in certain regions of UK. The, the, the London and the home counties, people, uh, places surrounding London, places where there's a massive regeneration, those are the ones that are having large, like a huge increase in value. But for someone that wants to have a very quiet life, someone like myself, is not necessarily a good place to live with family. Being able to move to places where you get a good amount of property for a decent price should be considered. There are different parts of UK whereby in London you buy a studio flat. The same amount, you go there, you are buying a three-bedroom house. And especially now that remote working is a thing. You can easily move to those places where there's good school, there's is family oriented and the property is not going to be too difficult for you to to afford so i don't think we can do much about the increase in value in 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 prices or whatever it is that's happening but we can do something in terms of us being realistic in what we can afford and working towards that than saying i want to be in london i want to be in london myself that i'm talking to you i moved to ashford it's not that I own a property, we own our property in London, but our property in London was a flat. It's what the same as where we're living, and it's a big house. So you need to be able to take your mind out of what you want and look at what you, what you need and what you can afford. Take the sentiment out of it be able to that will help you to sort of make the right decision for yourself yeah i don't know what the psychology around this is but there's probably a sort of a word that encapsulates like wanting to stay where you were born or where you grew up because that's what's most maybe it's like a familiarity bias kind of thing and also not to make light of the fact that a lot of people's networks friends family um colleagues will be in London, if that's where they've lived. It's certainly the case for me, it's where I've lived my whole life. Um, but I think- So, you, you reminded me of this saying in Nigeria. Is it, is it okay if I say it? I'm gonna use the Yoruba, but yeah. I'll try and translate it as much as I can. Yeah. There's this saying in, in, my, in Yoruba that says, which is like, it's people that you don't want that their places are far. Hmm. Do you understand? If you're gen, like I said, we moved to Ashford. We have friends coming to visit us. We have family friends coming. Even we have a family. Um, one of my English that actually asked us that we had to get a house for her in near us. She bought. She moved down from London the following year because she saw what we were able to get. I do understand where you're coming from in terms of, oh, this is my network. This is where I'm comfortable. This is where I can do both. 
we need to look at it from the point of the longer I stay there, the longer, the harder it gets for me to be able to achieve financial freedom. Let's forget about, oh, it's a property thing. If you look at it from your building of generational wealth, if you look at it from that standpoint that, okay, by acquiring this property in 10, 15, 20 years time, if my kids grow up, I'll have equity to help them go on the ladder. I'll, have, I'll be able to support them. I'll be able to give something to them to build them up so they're not starting from where I started. Yeah. Then it will be easier because you are giving yourself an opportunity to be in a position of strength for your kids. Point well made. And your point about remote working is also a key one as well, because to be fair, 2019 earlier, the appetite for remote working was basically non-existent and then everyone had to do it overnight. And then now it's become normal to days from home to have Zoom calls with people. And it's looking like it's going to stay that way, right? Because you can do four different meetings in a day where previously you probably would have traveled to all of those locations. Is if you look at the average cost of transport in 2019 to now, is is gone down. This is what the trend that we are seeing in terms of cases we're doing is someone living in that wants to buy a property in Sheffield, Manchester, for example, their work is in London. The question we used to get was, how will they commute? Now it's no longer a relevant question for the lenders. Yeah. Because they know it will be remote working. Yeah. So, so, so those are, sorry, those are cases that they used to decline because it didn't make sense to them for yeah. someone to leave that far and be working in certain place. But now it's become numb for them that they're having to adjust their products to accommodate that people are able to work remotely. Yeah. It's so interesting. And um, we don't need to get into this um, because this is more just amusing uh, a thought <laughs> process about how my brain works. But um, you know, I remember first using Skype in 2008, you know, 2009. That technology existed for another 10 years before we decided to use it for its intended purpose. So the way that my brain goes, I just think about what technology exists now that we just aren't using to its full potential or just aren't using proper, um, properly, which we, well, actually, no, cryptocurrency, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I remembered when Bitcoin started. I was aware of it when it was less than a penny. Yeah. I was aware of it. I knew when it, when it, when it started. And there was this uh, program, The Good Wife, that they had a document, uh, an episode whereby someone, a guy said he was the one that created it. Like, so, I'm talking about as early as 2000, early 2000, when the, the old thing started. 
if someone had told me then that this is where we'll be in terms of Bitcoin, I'm sure <laughs> I would I would have bought, but it's one of those things. It's it's those that I think what I'm trying to get at is is all about risk. Your attitude to risk. So that is those are the things that things like that will help. Someone like myself, I take risk, but they are calculated risks. Yeah. So it's it's everyone has a their level of risk. So. Um, I'm just conscious of time, so I'm going to... There's Sorry. one more question on the question cards, and then um, I'll go into the rapid-fire questions as quickly as we can, because you actually answered the final question I had for you, which was on um, property locations, so thank you. So let's take this final question from the question card, and it's, is there a particular size lease you suggest first-time buyers to stay away from? Is 84 years too low? Uh, 84 years is for a first time buyer it will be expensive to because with time the property will devalue will be will depreciate in value so it will be difficult for them to it's not that it will be difficult it will be expensive the lower the lease the 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 more expensive it gets to extend so anything below 90, I would say they should just, for now. If it's an investment opportunity, it's different because you can buy low, do it up, extend it yourself, then make it worth more. But for someone that wants to live in it, I think anything below that, they should they should just try and avoid. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you uh, for being the first guest to drop some Yoruba on us. Um, <laughs> on the show. I can't believe you episode. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a typical Nigerian guy. Yeah. I grew up in, in Lagos. So oh. I lo- I, <laughs> if I, I didn't give you that, then I didn't do myself justice. Yeah, no, I, I, I loved that. Um, my Yoruba is not good at all, but um, I would like to learn and my grandparents were just recently over and they spoke a decent amount of uh, Yoruba in the house to us you know like good morning and like please and thank you and that sort of thing so yeah I love that thank you for bringing that to the show let's do rapid fire questions really quickly and then we can wrap up um what has been your biggest financial achievement to date I think hold up with buying a forced property will be the the biggest one for me Great. What one piece of money advice would you have given to yourself 10 years ago? Don't spend too much. Save a lot. Good advice. Good advice. If you were to win the lottery, let's say you were to win £10 million, how would you allocate that money? Just acquire as much property as possible. That's the only thing that I'll put it on, to be honest. Residential or commercial? A mixture of both. Okay. Any um, particular types of commercial property? So I'm thinking like co-working spaces. Um... 
Well, if the, if for me, what the last uh, two years has taught me is there's a higher risk on that one than a residential. Mm. But the other thing is 20, 2008 taught us about residential as well. Yeah. So a mixture for me would be ideal where there's flat, a residential at the top and commercial at the bottom. Okay, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, and finally, what does success mean to you? Being able to spend time with my family Love instead that. of working. Because <laughs> that's the, that's the, for me, that's the success that you're sleeping, you're still earning money. Yeah. Um, time freedom and human relationships. Yeah. Speaking with some friends over the weekend and I think uh, we were just in the course of conversation, we, we all agreed that human relationships are ultimately what it's all about. They're the most valuable thing. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's, that's the joyful thing about, about being able to dictate your, your, your time. Because what I've realized over time is your time is valuable. If you give it to anyone, they'll waste it for you. If you don't put premium on your time, they will help you squander it. But if you value your time, you use it wisely, you invest your time properly. With time, over time, sorry, that time will start working for you without you working for time. Yeah. If, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Because you'll be able to invest the earlier time you have properly that when you get to that point, you can rest. Whereas you're still earning money. You're still living the standard of living you wanted without having to stress for it. And just to build upon what Olubengas just said, um, because you use the phrase, if you give your time to the wrong people, then they'll waste it for you. But, and I'm speaking to myself here when I say this, giving your time to the wrong people might not actually be physical people in front of you. It might be what I tend to do spending loads of time reading, you know, news articles about stuff that have nothing to do with me, spending <laughs> um, non-productive time on social media, for example. Um, these are ways in which you can use your time and like not even realize that you're using your time. So I completely agree. With I don't you. think everyone will look, will realize what you're saying because that's true. Yeah. Spending time flicking, flicking, flicking. I will tell you the truth. This is the first time I'm on Instagram. Ever? Yes. My first time because I realized it takes too much time off, but my staff has been nagging me, you need to be on the, the company needs to be on Instagram. Reluctantly, I said, okay, let's start. Let's start because I didn't build my business through social media okay. it was proper hard work and all that so this is my first time so you are my first interview on on social media thank you that's a huge honor um i've really really enjoyed speaking to you today and just chopping it up about property and uh, to the listeners at home please hammer the uh, like button if uh, you've enjoyed today's conversation if you think all the bankers done a great job I certainly think he has done as well. Before we wrap up today's Thank conversation, um, is there anyone you want to shout out or anything you want to plug? 
Oh, definitely. Um, I want to say um, I'm an advocate for opening doors for people to come into my industry because I realize part of the issue we have is access to people that can guide you in terms of how you to go about with your finances. So what we do, what I do in my company is I tend to take on newly qualified people. We train them up because I realize it's difficult. It's very hard for people like us to come into the industry. Because when I started, the experiences are hard. When I started, made it sort of a longer journey than it should have. So now that I've got my own business, I'm taking on nearly qualified people or people that are genuinely interested. We can help them, train them up. And at the end of the process, give them a place to practice their business. So if there's anyone out there that would be interested or know someone that's interested, they should contact me. Okay, can they just drop you a DM? Is it okay for them to do that? Yes, they can send me an email. They can email me via our portal, social media, on our website. Just email me. And I think you can... It's okay to share my email address with your contact... Your, your, your meet your contact so yeah okay um that brings us to the end of today's conversation um we've been talking about buying a home in 2022 olubenga we had some technical difficulties at the start but i think we we really brought so it you can you can you can understand why that happened <laughs> thank you for coming on today. Um, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you to everyone who tuned in, asked a question, left a comment. You've been awesome. Um, we will be back for episode 99 um, on Thursday with another special guest at half past six. So until then, everyone take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you.